Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain you, inspire you, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, moms and moms-to-be talk running with babies. Then, in the kick, how to avoid being that annoying runner at your next race. And the good as well as the bad of posting all of your runs on social media. But first, my interview with Nike CEO and Chairman Mark Parker. As you probably know, we are nearing the finale of Nike's ambitious Breaking Two project. This coming weekend, the weather will determine the exact date, three of the world's best runners will toe the line at a Formula One racetrack in Monza, Italy for an historic attempt to break two hours in the marathon. Never been done before. Back in March, I talked with Mark Parker in his office at Nike headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon, outside Portland. It was the week before those three runners, who are Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya, Lelisa de Sissa of Ethiopia, and Zersene Terese of Eritrea, ran a half marathon on that same track in Italy, as a dry run of sorts to try out lots of things, including the pacing and nutrition strategies that they will use in the final attempt, as well as the shoes and apparel that Nike has designed for them as part of this project. Mark doesn't give many interviews, so I was glad to catch him at this exciting time to learn more about why this record attempt is so meaningful to him and to his company and, in his opinion, to the sport, but also to hear about his own history as a runner and about where he draws his inspiration from. It was a great conversation, and it's coming right up. Thanks for joining us. Mark Parker has been at Nike since 1979. He started as a shoe designer and has been the CEO since 2006. And in 2016, he succeeded Phil Knight as chairman. But despite leading the $32 billion sports conglomerate, that is the most influential brand in the sport of running, Mark is still actively involved in the creative process for Nike products. In fact, his creative life is evident the moment you step into his office. In some ways, it looks exactly like you'd expect a CEO's office to look. There's a big conference table. There's a sitting area with a couch and a couple of comfy chairs. It's in the corner with big windows overlooking a beautiful lake. But there are also a few things, or a few hundred, even a few thousand things, that you wouldn't expect. Mark surrounds himself with original works of art, lots of paintings and sculptures and objects from all around the world that inspire him in one way or another. Many of those things, of course, are shoes. Before we sat down, he showed me a pair of golden shoes that Michael Johnson wore in the Olympics, as well as a couple of pairs that were designed by Bill Bowerman, who is the co-founder of Nike along with Phil Knight. Bowerman was not only a famous track coach at the University of Oregon, but was also an influential designer who handmade shoes for his athletes, including Steve Prefontaine. He became a mentor to Mark when he first came to Nike. Mark also showed me one of his prized possessions, the track spikes that Roger Bannister wore when he broke the four-minute mile. How long have you had these? Uh, about a couple of years, maybe. Yeah, he was had them up for auction for to raise funds yeah. for his foundation, his charity. Would you read what it says? Sure, on it says the, Roger on Bannister, 359.4, May 1954, which is the day he broke the four-minute barrier. Just all leather, very simple, all leather upper, no midsole at all, right? Yeah. 
No, it's an all-leather shoe, all-leather track spike. The only non-leather is the stitching and the, uh, the track spikes themselves, which he himself filed down to try to remove weight. He was obsessed, like Bowerman, with getting the weight down as light as possible. So this is all part of his quest. And just six spikes, but very long spikes. They were, yeah, they're quite long. To cut through the cinders, right? But there's, uh, there's pictures of him while he's in med school in a little workshop filing down these spikes to try to reduce the weight. So those are inspiring. We could have easily spent the entire hour I had with Mark going through all the stuff in his office. But eventually we sat down and had a great conversation. Just a few quick things. During this conversation, we talk about a few people. One is Tinker Hatfield, Nike's vice president of design and special projects. Tinker oversees the top secret innovation kitchen, which is the more informal name for Nike's advanced R&D division that Mark references. Tinker is also a design legend. Another person who comes up is Jeff Johnson, who is widely regarded as the first official employee of Nike's. And lastly, Mark's wife, Kathy Mills Parker, who at one point held the world record in the 5,000 meters, 1535.5. Not a bad running couple. Well, Mark, thanks for having me in your office and for sitting down for this conversation. Been looking forward to it. Let's start by talking about the Breaking Two project. You just showed me the shoes that Roger Bannister wore on the Ifley track. And Breaking Two, of course, is is Nike's moonshot going for a sub-two-hour marathon. How and when did this project come about? Well, formally, it started about two years ago. Uh, almost three, actually. It was the summer of uh, 2014, I believe. And it was a, a, a small group of people working in the advanced R&D area. And uh, we felt that uh, this is one of those holy grail uh, barriers, or if you will, the, the goals or that uh, really stood out in the world of distance running. And uh, we thought if we could use that as an inspiration, uh, then uh, it would push us to uh, really, with all the details that would have to go into making that happen, uh, to really innovate, and in a, innovate in a way that was uh, not just an evolution, but more of a breakthrough, a real revolution, looking at every possible angle that we could to help that athlete accomplish that incredible goal. So chicken and egg question, did the goal come first? And then you went about trying to solve for that audacious goal and, and the shoe innovations were part of that? Or were there some ideas about shoe innovations that were floating around that were sort of searching for an audacious goal to chase? Yeah, we've always been working on uh, pushing the envelope in uh, racing shoes specifically and looking at apparel that's um, competitive apparel that's more aerodynamic. So... It really accelerated that work, um, gave us a, uh, a very specific goal and timeline. I always uh, feel that uh, one of the greatest sources of creativity is, uh, this is a Frank Geary quote, so I'll give him credit, is a, a timeline and a budget. Uh, so having some constraints in terms of a, a, a timeline here, 
I think it was important to push the team. You know, there's uh, certainly no guarantees, it, it, but it really pushed us. A lot of the things that we were uh, contemplating or working on at the time, we pulled in, we got more uh, talent both inside and outside the company on these problems that we needed to solve. Uh, material sciences, engineering, um, looking at you know the aerodynamics, uh, the the resiliency of the the midsole material, uh, all of these factors needed to come together just in the shoe, for example. Let alone all the other factors that needed to happen. That's what we like. We we like big stretch goals. It's a way to really bring us together and kind of push. Uh, push innovation to to new levels, and that's that's what really this was all about. So, as far as the timeline, did you have something in mind that you wanted to try to beat or meet? You wanted to break this two-hour marathon by a, a certain year or a certain month within a year. Initially, we thought we might uh, have a lot of this project ready for Rio in the marathon, at least leading up to Rio. Which we did, at least in the footwear side of things. I mean, we had some incredible results leading up to Rio with the Olympic trials uh, and then obviously at Rio itself. But in terms of bringing all the elements together, it was going to be when we thought we were ready. You know, but not in the way distant future, sometime after the uh, Olympic marathon. So here we are. The second part of the Gary quote, the budget part, how much do you think Nike has spent on the Breaking 2 project thus far? I can't answer that question. Uh, I don't really know the all-in, but I will tell you, it's not like we're reckless and we're just spending, uh, you know, like drunken sailors. Uh, We have uh, real discipline around the advanced R&D agenda. That said, you know, this is not an inexpensive project. Uh, So we've got 20 people that are working, not necessarily full-time, but a big percentage of their time uh, from many different disciplines, uh, including some uh, uh, experts from outside the company, Uh, and then obviously working uh, with the athletes and their support teams as well. So yeah, it adds up. I can't give you a specific number. Um, You know, this is not about trying to get a return on investment from increased shoe sales per se. That, That wasn't the intent. I think the benefits of this project will definitely pay off in those ways, uh, but that wasn't the driving force behind this. Uh, uh, and I, I'm actually incredibly impressed with the work we've done to date, and I think the impact that's going to have, regardless if we, uh, with the athletes, I should say, uh, you know, break the two-hour barrier. Is there any precedent in Nike's history that compares to Breaking 2? Not necessarily in terms of, uh, you know, aligning against uh, a time like that. I mean, we obviously work with the world's best athletes and everyday athletes, but uh, with athletes who are at the top of their game trying to set records, yes, we do that all the time. I mean, I showed you Michael Johnson's shoes, both from Atlanta and, and then in Sydney. And that was another example of working closely with Michael to create something that would allow him to optimize his potential in the 200 and the 400 meters. Uh, So those shoes were designed specifically for him and that race. The 200 meter shoes actually had 
were built up on the lateral side on the right shoe and the medial side on the left shoe to provide that extra support going around the turn as one example. So, yeah, we, we're used to working with the world's best athletes and refining design so it works specifically for them, but also translates into things that can work for the everyday athlete. I've always felt that the process that we go through, the commitment we have to help athletes realize their potential is really what helps us realize our own. And that's the essence of Nike right there. What has been your personal role in connection to the project? A supporter, a cheerleader, um, a, uh, you know, making sure that we have the environment that we need to, you know, pull off, uh, if not breaking the two-hour barrier, at least making some really great progress towards that, um, you know, making people feel like they can take risks, and uh, this is part of the process, it's part of innovating. In a sense, this is something I geek out on as much as anybody. I'm definitely, you know, you can definitely call me a geek when it comes to this sort of thing. So how have you been geeking out on this project? Are you getting involved in the design of the shoes specifically? Uh, yeah, I'm not a micromanager in terms of uh, design. Uh, I mean, I, I still design, but uh, in this case, we have people that are incredibly, uh, you know, talented and well-equipped to do what they have to do. Uh, once in a while I get uh, pulled in uh, to ask for my uh, view on how things are going and what, what I think. So I do give feedback. Uh, I try not to sit on top of uh, anybody or over somebody's shoulder all the time looking. Uh, kind of come in every once in a while, get an update, and uh, give whatever feedback I can. But it's, frankly, it's more encouragement than it is uh, you know, specific design direction. So how nervous were you, or perhaps are you, about the scope and ambition of this project? Do you feel any apprehension? No, no actually not nervous at all. Uh, maybe I should be, but I'm not. I've never really felt that with this project, because I think it's one of those really important uh, stretch goals that we have. I'd be more nervous, frankly, if we weren't doing this sort of thing. Um, this is what we do. I mean, it, this goes back to Bill Barman's days when he's pushing the envelope, trying new things, you know, using his athletes to try to get feedback and insights that can help them be better. And that's this is a pure, pure form of that. You know, I think there's a if you're putting odds on this, you probably would, you know, be leaning more toward it's not going to happen because of all the factors that are involved with this. Uh, but I think, on the other hand, there's, there's a lot of value in pushing to get as close, if not break, this barrier. You know, they're really important to Nike, important, I think, to running, important to innovation. You're a runner. You've run marathons. You know how hard it is going to be to break two hours. Let's pretend that it happens. What, what's your gut feeling on what will then happen next, especially in the sport? You know, I only can imagine, but I, I have to go back to what I, this is the year before I was born, but uh, when Bannister broke his, the four minute uh, mile barrier, that it really opened things up. It made what many people thought was impossible, possible. And there's a practical and a psychological barrier that uh, 
was broken, and I think that opened up opportunity. I think it was a month later when John Landy actually came back and broke that record. And then they both ran against each other uh, that August, a few months later, and they both went under four. So it was amazing to see a goal that was so, uh, you know, by many people's estimations, you know, an impossible goal barrier to break. Uh, when it was broken, then, you know, that was started to become more commonplace. This is a tough, this is a tough one. I'm trying not to say it's a whole lot harder, but I will in that I think there's so many more factors that go into a marathon. I mean, you're out there for two hours plus, and there's the environment, there's the physiology, there's the um, the mental aspect of it. Um, everything has to line up. It's a much more complex equation with so many more variables. So to really achieve this type of goal, all those factors need to be lined up, and the day has to be great, the mindset has to be there, uh, and, and, but it's possible. All right, now let's pretend for a moment that it didn't happen, that they don't break two hours. Why not? What, what do you think the reason was, or reasons? I think we'll learn. That's the whole part of this project and this process that I think is so valuable. Uh, by trying and pushing that we're learning. We're learning a lot. And so I, I think, again, that's one of the uh, takeaways that I see in this. But what, could, what would prevent it from happening? I mean, you name it. These, these athletes are among the top three in the world that, you know, by our estimations and others, uh, stand to have the best chance. But certainly no guarantees. When you have to shave seven seconds off the current world record pace per mile, that's a lot, as you know. So all these factors have to go in, and they all have to line up. But ultimately, it's not us. It's about the athlete. So they're the ones who are are making this happen. You know, we're we're helping them in any way we can, Um, but it's up to them. And the athletes and the team that's working on Breaking 2 are trying to optimize all of these variables, right? And as with any audacious goal, there are critics, of course. And some of the critics are saying that the the methods that are being used to try to break this barrier run counter to the, quote, purity of the sport, unquote. What do you think about that, especially as someone who has been a lifelong runner and has run competitively? So we're learning a lot, uh, and we're still factoring in exactly how this will be executed. So we'll see. We're still trying to determine what is enough and what's too much in terms of helping the athlete. We don't want to create a completely unreal situation. So this is something that I think we have to fine-tune and finesse here as we uh, make the final preparations uh, for, the, for the actual run. I want to ask you about your running life. When did that begin? I started running in high school uh, back in uh, Stanford, Connecticut. And, uh, yeah, I played baseball a little bit. I wrestled a little bit. uh, But I was really meant more for running, I think. I was tall and pretty lean and had pretty good endurance, not so much speed. But uh, I love running. I mean, uh, actually probably more 
love to run than love to compete in a sense. I kind of got the running bug uh, in high school and it stayed with me, you know, really for a long time. I mean, I was kind of a, a real geek. I read something that you called yourself a running puke, yeah, even right. more extreme than a running geek. What's the yeah. difference between a geek and a puke? Well, a puke is, uh, well, uh, there's no technical definition, so uh, not that I'm aware of. So I would just say that I was extreme in my uh, running habits. Uh, I would probably run, well, I, th I kept a log. I ran over 10 years without missing a day, and I think I averaged about close to 15 miles, something like that. A day? Yeah, that's probably uh, puke level. Uh, I went to school at Penn State, uh, Central Pennsylvania, beautiful country. I would go out and run in the mountains. You know, I ran distance and cross country, but um, my real love was just, you know, really running long distance. And I did quite a few marathons and I can't run like I used to. I think I ran so much and the shoes I was wearing at the time didn't give me quite the protection I probably should have been wearing for that kind of distance running, that kind of mileage. Uh, so I supplement you know, little running now with spinning and cycling and hiking and weight training and that sort of thing. So when did you realize that you loved it? Is there a specific time that you look back on and maybe even a, a specific run and what that felt like to you? So at first I didn't like it uh, because I wasn't in that great of shape. But when I did get in better shape and it became easier for me to run long and hard, then it was all sort of a meditative quality, too, about it for me. Uh, uh, I just I did a lot of thinking. I still do. I, you know, a lot of that for me now is uh, running and walking, but I do a lot of problem solving and uh, still very much involved with the creative side of things and, and uh, design. So a lot of that, I, sometimes I sketch on my phone even when I'm out on a long walk. So you mentioned the shoes that you wore back when you were running 15 miles a day for a decade. You used to cut up your shoes and, and tinker with them, right? Why did yeah, you do that? I thought I could make them better. I could add a little bit of cushioning, which I did, probably not enough. I would actually take the outsole off the shoe, add more EVA, which is the, you know, basically a stock cushioning slab of foam of the time, uh, by today's standards, it would be quite heavy and hard and not very, not as resilient as what we see today with these super lightweight foams that are highly resilient. But lightweight uh, or uh, foam uh, cushioning added that for more protection. Uh, I changed the outsole. I put, actually, I got a hold of uh, a number of sheets of uh, Nike waffle outsole material from the local running uh, specialty shop that did resoling, and I uh, would cut those up and put those on my shoe. I would take the sock liners out of the shoe and put in sock liners that I felt, you know, fit me better. So there was more just custom tailoring shoes to fit my personal needs, uh, and it was quite a natural thing for me to do. Um, looking back, it was probably a bit more unusual. And, I, I, you know, when I get to come to Nike in 1979, it was, and I uh, eventually met Bill Bowerman, sort of a kindred spirit there in uh, that sort of whole process of uh, modifying shoes to try to make them better. So he taught me a lot as well. So I was, I was in heaven at that time working with uh, Bowerman, who's, for me, was a legend. You know, Oregon running was, uh, when I was in school, was... Uh, 
one of those sort of romantic Northwest uh, pre Bowerman, incredible athletes coming on it. So to, to actually be out in Oregon eventually, and then working with Bill, learning how to to do what I was doing, but at another level, and then with Nike, of course, uh, incredible. Yeah. So when you were cutting up your own shoes and adding more cushioning to them, was was there a coherent thought in your mind that you wanted to be a shoe designer and maybe even a shoe designer at Nike, since you you know had gotten that waffle outsole material did you think about it that specifically no never never i, I was going to be a uh, veterinarian when i was going to school then i was going to be uh, an environmental lawyer um i didn't obviously go down either path i was uh interviewing for jobs after i got out of school before i was going into a, a master's program and then i came across nike reading an article about blue ribbon sports and uh exeter new hampshire and I was in Connecticut, so I cold called and just, it was totally divergent path from what I was uh, looking at at the time. And uh, I drove my little VW Bug, you know, which I paid $500 for up to Exeter. And I met with uh, the sales uh, people. And they said, well, you know, you, you should go over and talk to uh, Jeff Johnson, who's over in the uh, product R&D area. So I did. I drove across town uh, to Exeter, and um, I met with Jeff, and uh, yeah, I mean, he offered me a job right on the spot. And I thought, okay, this is this is strange, but it's very cool, and I, I didn't really feel like I had the qualifications, but... Uh, but then I realized I actually did, because at, the, at that time, the industry wasn't hiring industrial designers that were formally trained in design. It was only, you know, a bit after that that that, that started to happen. And um, so it was very natural for me, in a sense, to talk to other athletes and uh, make prototypes and to help them, you know, with their needs. That process was very straightforward and easy for me, and I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I, all the time I was thinking, this is quite strange. I never imagined I would be doing this. And then I was going to leave and go back to graduate school, and I was Jeff convinced me, no, why don't you stay? You're going to learn a lot more here. And he was right. I, I had eight different jobs all added to each other my first couple of years there. It really felt more like a startup. So you mentioned running at Penn State. You ran at a pretty competitive level. What are the sporting accomplishments that you're most proud of? I would hesitate to say I ran at a really high competitive level. I was... I would say I was more mediocre average. I mean, compared to some of the other runners I was with, you know, the, some of the guys on the team, uh, Greg Fredericks was there right when I first came, and he was the American record holder in the 10K. We had national champions, uh, you know, George Malley, uh, American record holder in the steeplechase. I mean, these, uh, these were really accomplished athletes. So for me to say I was highly competitive, there, I was a walk-on, and I wanted to be part of a team, and I, I did, and I loved it. So I got to work out and push myself. Uh, I wound up running a lot of marathons throughout my college days. I probably ran 30-plus-ish, uh, somewhere in there. I never really kept track, and I, I was okay. Well, I don't know if I was that great. I married uh, a girl from the girls' track team and cross-country team, and she was... She was at a whole different level than me. Uh, she was a world record holder on the 5K. 
Still has her records at Penn State, uh, amazingly. So relative to who I was running with, I, I, I thought I was average. Any PRs that you're most proud of? Not so much. I was, you know, never really fixated on time as much. I, you know, I won a marathon in central Pennsylvania, that small one, Johnstown Marathon. That was fun. I really enjoyed that because I came off a summer of being injured. And then I amped up my mileage. So it was the first time I actually gave myself a break from my mega mileage. And then I, I was coming back slowly and I added some speed work and then I felt unbelievably good. So it's just an indication that I, you know, grossly overtrained. I think it was 230. Yeah, two thirty. I ran a lot of 230s. I think I ran two 230s that were a second apart uh, within the week. You know, I could crank those out like all day long. Yeah. But, you know, you know, getting getting a whole lot under two, 230 was uh, harder for me. And I just but 230, I could run all day long. So when was the last time you ran a marathon? It sounds like it's been a while. I had, uh, eventually I developed compartment syndrome in my calf so that I had to get surgery. Uh, and then I, I, that was in the uh, mid eighties. So that's really the last time I ran a marathon. So it's been quite a while for me. And then I, coming off of that, I was still running a lot, but I supplemented running as I probably should have before uh, with other things. What is your running life like today? You mentioned that you're mixing in some running with some walking and some other activities. How, how many days a week are you able to get out and run? Well, I get out every day. I probably run uh, three to five days a week, but it's mixed in with walking. So it's I kind of walk or, and or run, I should say, how I just how I feel. I'm I was so uh, so um, obsessed with keeping a diary and a log and a you know every day I would write down exactly what I did and my times and everything and and uh, I just didn't want to go back to that. I wanted to just run because I enjoyed it. And that's kind of what I do today. Do those other activities give you what running gives you? Uh, n- no. Well, no. No. The short <laughs> answer is no, because uh, that's the thing with running. I was so, uh, I, I think I was in really good shape and I could run a lot and I could run pretty at a good pace for a long distance. And I, I loved the, that feeling. And it's hard to replicate that feeling uh, with other you know, uh, cycling, you can get a little bit of that. But when you're running that kind of distance and you're in that kind of shape, there was, for me, there was nothing that was close to that. Yeah. And I still look back at that. And I, when I run today, it's like, gotta, you know, it's the comparison to when I was running when I was in great shape is, uh, it's just, there's no comparison. <laughs> you know, a uh, feeling of uh, floating, of uh, euphoria, of effortless in some ways feeling like time is you're not thinking about time even though I did at the end of my run but I I was uh yeah you just you sort of get it you're divorced from what you're doing in a way that physical feeling is not uh unless you really start to push yourself and then it becomes quite conscious but I could run actually long and hard and 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 maintain that feeling of just uh, almost effortlessness, and I, I, I think that's a really special feeling. Is it coincidental or intentional, and maybe even essential, that the CEO of Nike is a runner? 
It's not essential. I think it's really essential that you have a love of sport and, um, you know, that that carries through in, in what you do and how you do it and you, you project that. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine somebody who's not into sports doing what I do. So you came to running and came to Nike really in the early days of the first running boom. And, and running is just, as you know, continued to boom and boom and boom. But recently there are some signs of some flattening out and even decline in, in the sport and in the running business. Some specialty retailer challenges and some stores closing and you know races struggling to attract as many registrations. What do you make of that? Well, I think globally the sport is healthy and participation numbers when you start to look outside the U.S. are actually growing. And I think there's a shift to happening. You know, it's maybe less of the numbers in traditional races, and there's a movement toward, I guess I would just say, less traditional races. You know, things like, well, here locally, you know, we have the hood to coast, so group relay type races and uh, races with different themes uh, to make it more inviting, more interesting to people. So I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually bullish on the future of running. I'm, I'm really feel like any sport, um, well, particularly running, which is a large, broad-based participation, that there's going to be evolution and change. I've heard, you know, that the running boom is really tapering off for the last 30 years, off and on. So it's not that that I dismiss that. Um, but I think it's not a lack of interest. It's more of a shift in, in the landscape. And, and with, in the retail area, I think it is a tough time for retail, period. I think there's a lot of consolidation going on in retail. And the RSGs, the running specialty uh, stores, are, are feeling a lot of that, too. It's just hard, harder to compete. I think it's just understanding that you have to move with changing consumer preferences and uh, expectations. So that's definitely the challenge that Nike faces. You know, how do we advance the sport? How do we create interest in the sport? How do we, um, you know, inspire uh, people to participate, to get out and run? And I'm, I'm hopeful that even as something as geeky uh, and as scientific and as uh, high level as breaking two hours in the marathon might actually inspire people in some ways. You don't have to be a complete marathon nerd to appreciate that this is an amazing goal to set. And, um, you know, just the process of setting a goal like that and getting close to it, if not beating it, is, is uh, we hope, is, uh, is actually inspiring. Despite Nike's size and its commitment to innovation and, and excellence, it's not currently the number one brand in the specialty running channels. Why do you think that is? Well, it depends on where you look, uh, but I think where we're where we're not in uh, the top position, I think a lot of it has to do with uh, being consistent with um, product. It's it's this balance between consistency with um, kind of like franchise models that people come to really uh, know, appreciate, and want to stay on, you know, hold on to. Uh, we have examples of that. Obviously, things like the Pegasus or the Structure, you know, shoes that every their go-to shoes. And a lot of runners, I've heard this for many years, they're like, we like the innovation, but we don't want you to change so much. So this, it's this balance between driving innovation 
and improving performance and keeping some consistency at the same time and achieving that balance. But I do think we've got to you know, strike that more consistent, better balance between um, keeping with things that people know and love and, and also pushing the envelope. Yeah, I think that will, that will definitely help. So again, in part because of Nike's size, there is a perception that some people have that it's sort of an 800-pound gorilla in, in, the, in the sports world and in running, in particular, in part because of the USATF sponsorship, for example. Is that fair? Well, we are big. I mean, we're, uh, <laughs> there's no denying our size. And sometimes size doesn't, uh, it can help you in many ways. And I, I think we should use our size in a way that actually can create more impact potential in, a, in as positive a way as possible. That's really what we're striving to do. So I think, though, uh, you know, we, we definitely are absolutely driven to play by the rules, uh, to, to be fair and add to the sport, advance the sport, uh, increase the, the uh, number of participants, be inviting, be inspiring. The two key words in, in Nike's mission statement uh, are innovation and inspiration. And that's really what we want to represent. Uh, but when you innovate, uh, sometimes you, you push the edges. And sometimes that, you know, people react differently to that. I mean, I, but I think that's been our history. I think that the only difference today really is uh, the size and scope. All right. So last question, what inspires you? And, and is part of that, this relationship that I've heard about, I don't know if it's true or not, that you have with Tinker Hatfield in, internally? I get inspiration from everywhere. I mean, I can go on a walk and see a flower or a leaf or an insect and, and it triggers some sort of inspiration that might relate to how we finish a product or how we color up a, a product. But I, I think one thing that ties a lot of that together is, that, is the pursuit of trying to be better. Better could be in terms of performance, it could be in terms of the aesthetic, it could be uh, you know, to make it simpler, uh, stronger, lighter, faster, and the combination of all those things. You know, how can you be uh, stronger and more supportive, but also lighter at the same time? You know, so it's, and nature is an incredible source of inspiration uh, because these are problems that have been sorted out through millions of years of evolution. But truly, I get inspiration from objects, from car design, from architecture, could be a cloud formation. I mean, it's just uh, literally, I think, being open-minded. We have a saying here, be a sponge, which is really be observant, take in everything around you, uh, because you don't know where that inspiration is really going to come from. So you have to have that openness. And Tinker, you know, my relationship with Tinker goes way back. We've been... Uh, sort of creative partners for 30 plus years, we riff off each other, kind of like, you know, maybe a couple of jazz musicians do, you know, th there's a lot of improvisation. The way that it was described to me is you sort of have this running dialogue with each other that takes the shape of sketches that you trade back and forth. It used to be more physical drawing sketches, and today we, we both use uh, an app, specifically the Sketchbook Pro app. I'm not plugging, but it's a, it's a great app. So we can literally trade ideas. It could be one in the morning. Most of the time it's uh, product-related sketches, but sometimes it's goofing around kind of sketching. But most of the 
more serious stuff is actually product related. And I'll sketch, send it to him, he'll sketch over it, I'll sketch over that. So we can do that iterative kind of back and forth process really easily and uh, comfortably with each other. And he really respects my input and vice versa. So I think it's one of those one plus one equals three kind of a things. It helps sort of nurture my creativity. I'm very visual, so it's easier for me sometimes to show a sketch than it is to try to explain something or put it in a memo. And it tinkers the same way. Uh, so so it's a, very, it's a very natural thing for me. My, sketch, my notebooks have uh, lots of sketches in them. And sometimes I sketch in meetings and people think I'm not listening, but I actually can listen better sometimes when I'm sketching. But no, that's a very special relationship that, that we have, and it goes way back, and we've had uh, amazing projects together, um, some real highlights for both of us, yeah. Well, Mark, thank you again for the time and for the conversation. Sure, David. Thank you. That was my conversation with Nike CEO and Chairman Mark Parker. To catch up on all of our coverage of Nike's Breaking 2 project, check out episodes 33, 42, and 44. We'll also list those for you on our show page at runnersworld.com audio. Also, we will carry the live stream of the Breaking 2 attempt on our website. It goes without saying that babies change things, a lot of things, including running. And here, producer Claire Tregesser hits the road with some new moms to learn how they balance their running lives with the new loves of their lives. All right, so if you can't hear Paige crying, that's what she's doing. We're in the jogging stroller. I'm gonna try to run to the library with Paige to do baby bookworms and baby discovery. This is Megan Olber, running the streets of San Diego with her seven-month-old daughter, Paige. She put up a big fight just getting her buckled into the stroller, but now that we're rolling, she seems to like it. All right, off we go. Megan is a first-time mom. She was a dedicated runner before Paige was born, completing more than 20 half marathons and marathons, one of which was a Boston qualifier. Now she's struggling to fit running into her new life. It's not as easy as just strapping Paige into the stroller and taking off. There are a lot of things to think about. Finding shade because, you know, she would be exposed in the sun and, you know, that's the way it is. So, you know, that's such as my life at the moment. And nursing. All right, and we're back after a slight pit stop on the side of the road. Fill my baby's tummy, and we're back. Only passed by three cyclists who gave me the nod. <laughs> it used to be that one of my priorities was running, and part of that priority was just beating my own times or just doing better or doing like a different way. I know. We're sitting in a park near Megan's home. With baby Paige happily perched on her lap, Megan tells me about her new running life as a mom. Are doing a different type of race or something that, to challenge myself, and now I, I are like I already feel challenged enough. 
Megan used to challenge herself with regular marathon training, so she thought nothing of pounding out an easy five or six miles. Now a run that long would be a big achievement. It's almost like I'm not interested in that type of challenge right now because everything else is challenging. Megan ran through most of her pregnancy, but it wasn't easy. In her first trimester, she was completely exhausted a lot of the time. I felt like it was a different type of fatigue than just being like tired. It was like I couldn't keep my eyes open. My whole entire existence was tired. It wasn't just this like, oh, if I go take a walk, I'll all of a sudden be better. And then in her third trimester, she felt so big that running was uncomfortable. You have this like belly now and it's sort of, you kind of feel like you're waddling a little bit. And it it does, it kind of like swings from side to side. Oh, what are you saying? Fatigue, waddling, a swinging belly. I was hanging on Megan's every word. That's because I'm pregnant. And there's so much I wanted to know about running while pregnant. First and foremost, is it safe? So after talking with Megan, I visited Dr. Yvette LaCourcier, an OBGYN at UC San Diego Health. She was a runner in college, NCAA All-American Division III. Then after becoming a doctor, she started the Maternal Weight and Wellness Program at UC San Diego, which recommends women aim for 150 minutes a week of moderate exercise. She reassured me that yes, running is safe for most women with a couple of common sense caveats. One is that you need to keep your core body temperature within two degrees of normal. So most running will only bump your core body temperature less than a degree. And so women though who are training for marathons or half marathons can often, if they're running under hot, humid conditions, get their body, core body temperature up. So it's important in that case to make sure you're wearing light clothing, that you're hydrating well before running and during running if it's a long run. With warmer weather coming up in San Diego, I likely won't be doing any long runs for a while. Not that I'm really feeling up for one anyway, but I'll put a 5 or 10K on my calendar so I won't feel race-deprived. Dr. LaCourcier also recommends that about six or seven months into their pregnancy, runners should steer clear of the trails. I know folks sometimes like to go off-roading for their runs. It makes it a lot more fun. But especially after 34 weeks, the center of gravity changes. And so I'd consider changing routes a little bit so that you have good firm footing um, along the way. I'm not much of a trail runner, but I do love to hike. Dr. LaCourcier says that's fine as long as I'm moving slow enough to be careful about my footing. As for running in that belly-swinging third trimester, Dr. LaCourcier says women's bodies will tell them when it's time to stop. I was relieved to hear that running is not only safe during pregnancy, but for most women, it's encouraged. And that has motivated me when I felt nauseous and exhausted. Running has always made me feel better, and now it's helping me through a different kind of physical challenge. But perhaps not surprisingly, I'm already thinking about when I'll be able to hit the road again after this major life event. And I was surprised by Dr. LaCourcier's answer. She says most women can start exercising again within two to six weeks. Of course, for a lot of women, that's easier said than done. As my friend Megan found, there are many hurdles. You're exhausted, your body is different, and taking a tiny baby out in a running stroller can be tricky. And it can be tough to find running buddies who get where you're at. Elephant, a wrinkled, wrinkled, wrinkled.
elephant that wrinkles, wrinkles everywhere. Enter a very specific kind of running group. This is Stroller Strides. About 15 women with babies in strollers are running at San Diego's Mission Bay, stopping along the way to do strength workouts and suicide sprints. Then it's five runs back and forth to the stuff animal, bring him a stuff animal at some point. The teacher, Sybil Steiner, has the moms run out and grab a stuffed animal about 10 feet away in the grass to bring back to their kids in the strollers. She also blows bubbles and keeps the singing going so the kids stay occupied. Samar Schneider, mom of an 18-month-old, calls the workouts her religion. Saved my whole everything. Saved my relationship, saved my life, because um, it's a great community of uh, women, and they're all going through the same similar trials and tribula um, tribulations, and uh, they're not sleeping, and, and we get to exercise and get fresh air and be outside in the sunshine. Stroller Strides organizes nationwide running groups for parent-kid combos. And yes, it's definitely open to guys, too. It's just way more popular with women. Mom of two, Katie Neal, says the instructor-led workouts combined with the opportunity to run with a community of like-minded people who just get it is well worth the yearly membership fee. In San Diego, it starts at about $800. Sometimes difficult, you know, we all understand. That's another thing. We understand <laughs> that when our kid pitches a fit, somebody else's kid, you know, is going to pitch a fit the next day. So none of us are really too judgy or upset that, you know, they're... They're disturbing the peace. Samar, the mom of the 18-month-old, says the group has also helped her find friends in a new and sometimes lonely phase in her life. It's such a community. Everybody's really open arms and open heart, and they all watch each other's kids and learn to share. It's really, I couldn't say more about it. It's really great. Another mom, Katie Sullivan, really impressed me. She has three kids, including a four-month-old, and just finished a half marathon in well under two hours. Almost all of her runs are with the Stroller Strides group. And then maybe once a week on my own, if I can convince my husband to take on all three <laughs> by himself. Katie used to run with her stroller by herself and thought the Stroller Strides workouts would be too easy, but then was roped into trying a class. Now she's hooked because she says the group helps her continue her identity as a runner and provides a support system of other parents. A crying baby might not go over too well in a normal running group, but not here. Sometimes he acts up, I have to take him out, I have to feed him, and it's no big deal. You know where the group is going next. and. Um, they're all moms, so everyone kind of understands if one has a meltdown. Hearing from moms like Katie made me feel hopeful about my own running future. These women were finding a way to fit running into their new lives and seemed unfazed by the extra complications of running with a stroller. But stroller strides or similar groups aren't an option for everyone, including Megan and her husband Aaron. They're also not the only hope for reinvigorating your running life post-baby. It's obviously not easy getting back into a running routine, but both Megan and Aaron have found that adjusting their expectations and, yes, drawing on a seemingly bottomless well of patience can go a long way. Aaron runs with baby Paige about once a week and says at first, it wasn't quite what he expected. I thought it was going to be like this joyous experience and 
you know, I'd just be able to throw her in the in the buggy and just roll, and it's not like that at all. You have, like, a whole procedure that you have to do before you even get out the door, and then once you get out the door, you have to pray that she doesn't cry or get upset, because if she gets really upset, then your your run is over. Aaron says Paige is getting more used to the stroller. When we talked, he just had a great run with her the day before. I literally started running pretty early in the morning, and uh, it was a little bit before her nap time, but like right when we started to roll, she fell asleep, and I was able to do five miles of running, and then I did a mile of walking, and it was about six miles total, but it was like the best run that I've had ever since we've had her. Aaron and Megan also sometimes trade off. So one goes on a run while the other watches Paige, and then they switch. Megan says, of course, running is harder than before having a kid. But when she gets it done, she also has a bigger feeling of accomplishment than she used to. Done. Two and a half miles complete. None too early since I'm about to walk up this really big hill to go home. And proud of myself for not only being, getting all the mom stuff done, like actually making it to the library um, and participating in baby signing and baby discovery, but, you know, getting a run in for myself. Um, And I mean, believe it or not, Paige is awake and just mellow and content. That's huge, really, really huge. I have to say, it's a relief to hear Megan and Aaron are getting some good runs in with Paige. My husband and I aren't quite at the point of scoping out strollers yet, but we're both committed to continuing to be runners, even after our baby is born. Thanks to Megan Olber for sharing so much from her runs, and to her husband Aaron, the Stroller Strides Group, and Dr. LaCourcier for talking with me. And now it's time for The Kick with editors Kit Fox and Heather Mayer-Urban. All right, Heather, this week we start with a bit of a controversial topic in the elite running world. Revolves around doping, hot, big in the news the past few months. What's going on now? So the European Athletics Organization is suggesting new rules that would change the way we test for doping and record-setting performances. And if these rules get passed... It has big implications for world records set before 2005. Yeah, okay, so a couple of things. Basically, the European Athletic Organization wants to implement stricter rules if you break a world record, which sounds good. Should mention this is being proposed. It has not passed yet. The IAAF would need to ratify this new rule. What's the controversy? I mean, it sounds good. Let's be stricter on dopers. So any record set before 2005 would basically be nullified. And why 2005? Uh, The IAAF didn't save samples. So, you know, you have records set before 2005. You can't retest those athletes. And as we know, testing's getting better, so it's important to retest certain performances. Yeah, and this is important because it happened recently. Um, We saw this with Shalane Flanagan, who is going to get a silver medal from her performance in the 10,000 meters in Beijing 2008 because the current, or I should say now previous silver medalist, 
Her sample was retested, came up positive. That seems like a good thing. It's catching the cheaters, even though it's years later. I guess what is the problem and, and why are some athletes upset about this? Well, you know, one record that comes to mind is Paula Radcliffe's 2003 marathon world record, 215.25. That would be nullified. She no longer competes. And any records, you know, from the Olympics, any world records from the 80s, 90s would not exist, which that, that's a big deal. It is, in a way, punishing athletes like Paula Radcliffe, who throughout her entire career was tested thoroughly and, and never tested positive. Um, so she's spoken out about this rule, obviously. Uh, but again, proposed rule has not passed yet. What happens next with this? So the IAF is expected to approve or not approve the proposal in July. And if they do approve it, that would come into effect within the next 12 months. So we're going to keep an eye on that. Okay. We definitely will be watching out for this. Doping during a race, definitely not cool. That goes on our not cool list. Um, moving on, since over the past two weeks we just had the Boston Marathon, a couple little controversies mid-race in the in the like mortal field, we'll call it. You know, the, <laughs> yeah, I like that. The field that we're in uh, came to light, bringing about this discussion of of race etiquette. You were, we were talking about this in the office, so. What were the big stories coming out of the Boston Marathon? Yeah, so there was a post that went viral. This guy, he came through the finish line and he grabbed his Boston Marathon finisher's medal. And depending on you ask, he was either offered or he took a second medal for his wife. He said, you know, it's a kind nice of, gesture. Kind of posted this sweet post on Facebook like, my wife was, you know, a big supporter of me and she deserves the medal just as much as I do. I made one for my husband a couple years ago. I got one made for him. Just okay. putting that out there. See, that seems like it's okay. A lot of people were very upset with this man because, um, you know, he took an extra medal. It's not like Boston ran out of medals, but it's the, it's the you know, she the thought behind it. it. She didn't run the marathon. She shouldn't get a medal. And what else happened? The second thing that happened at the Boston Marathon was, was a group of runners, all kind of part of the same organization, formed this human chain at the finish line, oh, basically boy. blocking – um, other runners that were finishing because they wanted that cool finisher's photo. Uh, so these controversies, if you will, spread across social media. Runners had many thoughts about them, which led us to ask, you know, what are some racing etiquette rules? We And we talked to a race director from the Pittsburgh Marathon. Yes. So we spoke to Patrice Matamoris um, from the Pittsburgh Marathon, whose race actually happens to be this weekend. We spoke with her, get some general guidelines, if you will. And I guess starting right off the bat, don't take extra medals. <laughs> I think that's That's, fair. that's pr pretty fair. Um, and two, you know, don't be a nuisance or interfering with other runners. So this human chain, really not okay. No. Especially um, if you've got someone coming in the back trying to hit a certain time or getting hit, just... Don't you know, take your photo later. It's runner safety. It's, um, you know. Etiquette. Okay. Here's another one. Pretty popular one. Proposals at the finish line. Lovely, romantic gesture. Do it off to the side. Maybe maybe at mile, mile seven. After a shower. Ooh, yeah. I mean, Personally. I yeah. I want to smell good. Um, and actually, the Pittsburgh Marathon got so many requests for proposals that they have a system where you can say, hey, I want to propose, and the marathon coordinators will actually set you up and make sure that you're doing it you know, in a safe area, and you'll get your photo op, and you get your hug, your kiss, and you know, marital bliss. Yeah, you'll, you'll still get that magical moment. I will say one thing. If you do 
decide to go rogue, propose at the finish line, you do. I mean, you run a high risk of yahoos like me dancing in the background, ruining that moment forever. So you get one shot at a proposal. Uh, maybe don't do it at a finish line. We also delved into another, uh, you know, interesting, controversial, sometimes mid race, sometimes not mid race topic. We wanted to see what the biggest social media faux pas are while running. You know the common phrase, Strava didn't happen. <laughs> uh, we need to know when is too much, when is too little. Heather, guide us. So we looked at this study from MIT, and the study, yes, it was a scientific study looking at social media, and it showed that you know when you use social media, whether it's Strava or Matt My Run or what, you know, Twitter, and you see people who are running, you might try to compete with them. You might go harder on an easy day. Um, but ultimately, it might you know, push you to work a little harder, and the results can show. Um, the study found that when people ran an extra 10 minutes, their friends ran, on average, an extra three minutes. So they saw those posts go up, and they're like, all right, well, I'm going to extend my run a little bit. Okay, yeah, this was also a huge study, 1.1 million runners. Wow. So Do you have that many followers? Uh, no, I don't, unfortunately. If I did, I'd probably be a world record holder in the marathon because according to the study, social media followers make you faster. So something that's really interesting and I guess kind of makes sense is you, people tend to push themselves harder, not so much to catch someone who's faster than them, but when they see someone who is gaining on them. And I do this when I see, oh, so-and-so is running you know, two minutes behind me in a marathon, I better move it because I don't want that person to beat me. Not surprisingly, this is mostly true around men. They tend to be more competitive. Um, but it, the, the quote from one of the researchers, couch potatoes influence marathoners more than marathoners influence couch potatoes, which I thought was really interesting, but, but rings true. Yeah, I like to think that that's the reason why our producer, Brian Dalek, is getting faster because he's just so terrified of me catching up to him. You're coming for him. I'm coming for him. The study bills this as a good thing. So like the more followers you have on Strava, the faster you may be likely to run because other people are motivating you to to improve. Um, There are actually a couple maybe problems with it though. What are those? So whether you're running or racing, you you don't want to race every single run. Easy days should be easy days. And just because you might log... A slower day because you're resting doesn't mean you're a bad runner. So there's that. Um, you know, don't race just to get that selfie to post on Instagram. I mean, we're in the air, we're in the world of posting everything, and you know, like in our race etiquette story, you take a selfie in the middle of a race, you've got runners behind you, and they might hit you, and that's not fair to them. And speaking of selfies, and this is something we covered in our print our print issue. If you're interrupting a hard workout to take a picture, whether it's a selfie or you curled over, your priorities really aren't in order. A hard workout is a hard workout, and this is something I feel strongly about. Finish your workout, rehydrate, refuel, and then if you want to take a picture and post it, go ahead, and I won't comment. Yeah, as Heather's talking about this, her eyes are boring into my forehead because I ran Big Sur this weekend, and come on, it was too beautiful not to take a few selfies. I may or may not have Snapchatted a couple times, but I made sure that I was out of the way, and I got my amazing photo next to the piano player. That was a the, pretty awesome. On photo. the cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. What song was he playing? He was playing Bohemian Rhapsody. It was a beautiful <laughs> moment, uh, but made sure that they were out of the way. 
didn't interfere at all. And, you know, going back to the overall theme of the study, I just want to say, you know, if you all want to make me a faster runner, you should follow me on Strava. I think that's the only reason why I'm slow. All right. Follow Kit. Kit Fox. (laughs) Okay, that's it for today's show. Thanks, as always, for your comments and ratings. We are always using your feedback to create a better show. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week's show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Christine Fennessy, Brian Dalek, and Claire Tragesser. Be sure to join us next week for my conversation with Runner's World writer and columnist Alex Hutchinson. Alex will be in Monza, Italy this weekend for the culminating event in Nike's Breaking 2 project. Whatever happens this weekend, I'll be recapping the results with Alex, and we will be sharing that conversation with you. I'm super excited to see what happens. We also, in the next episode, will have the latest installment in my Moonshot series. If you've been following along in my quest to finally qualify for the Boston Marathon, you'll know that it has been full of unexpected challenges, including a couple of injuries. But things are actually looking really good. So I hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.